Welcome to episode 15 of the TurfCast podcast. RD is back with me today, and we have already cracked into the Keystone. So you know it's going to be a good show here. And once again, we uh, really don't have a set kind of plan here, but that's kind of the way the show's been going. And I think it's been going pretty well, actually, just kind of sitting down and talking. It's cathartic, right? To sit down and uh, overanalyze all of the wrongs that you've done to your grass think about all the possibilities that are still out there and figure out how you're gonna all pay for it do it and still be sane at the end right yeah exactly and uh i would say i don't know i haven't been doing so well with some of those things so we'll talk about that tonight but maybe the staying sane part has been has been getting to me a little bit uh, with the grass so. uh, yeah i mean it, it's easy to do and it's that time of year, right? So, like, there's, uh, I feel like there's a psychology to every single year that, you know, April, May, everybody's excited and it's super easy. And then you get to June and it's like the first wave of adversity. And how does the turf respond? How does the weather respond? How do you respond? And then, you know, usually, usually we get through it. Now, I looked at your forecast and it's going to be a little while before you get through it. Let me tell you what, it, it looks, it looks a little difficult on the road ahead for you my friend the bad part however um the bad part has been that the spring wasn't very good either because this the last two springs in a row have been really weird here where it'll be somewhat nice for like a couple days and then all of a sudden like off of a cliff will go down to like a low of 36 randomly for some reason for like two days in a row and then you know, it might come back up, but the grass has just been really confused as to any consistency not really happening. And so I've been waiting for what I knew was going to come, which was that sort of roller coaster was going to end, but we were going to go straight up to 90 degree weather. And that's where we're at right now. You know, so I was noticing, you know, we've had a very similar spring, right? We've we've had the highest of highs, we've had the lowest of lows. Uh, well, I think that's Tale of Two Cities, right? <laughs> Dickens? Yeah, something like that. I had a flashback there to ninth grade English. Wow, that was deep. How many keystones have we had so far? Okay. Not enough. So anyway, um, so no, no, not nearly. Not nearly. So um, same thing here where, you know, you look at the weather patterns. And again, we try to, we, we try to forecast what we're going to do and anticipate what we're going to need to do based on weather, right? Like that's the driving factor in all of this stuff. And this spring has been exceedingly difficult um, for us Midwest cool season folks. And, you know, quite honestly, from what I know uh, from my friends in other parts of the country, Northeast and, um, you know, Mid-South going down there in the Carolinas, it's been much of the same. It's been a very, very odd spring, you know, in this Eastern half of the country. And that said, you know, I, I don't think it's time to, get into the, you know, the judgments of what you've done and what you, you know, what you haven't done and things like that. Like the, the, the hand you've been dealt is very much outside of your control. And so, you know, the things I'm seeing right now here in Ohio, and I, you know, I actually just thought about this. I was driving home from dinner this evening with my wife and looking at all this grass that's, you know, moderately well-maintained, you know, so these are boulevard strips commercial properties and and big houses and things like that and the turf actually doesn't look terrible like and it's the first time i can say like 
in several months that there hasn't been something that's affected it. Now, that being said, we're going through our first real stretch of heat and humidity. And it's not super hot. Like we're, we're like 85, 87. You know, so it's not super hot, but man, is it humid here. And the di- disease pressure is way up. And so, you know, the things that I'm seeing are number one, um, starting to see our first breakthrough in fungus, right? So we've got, um, you know, areas that if, the, if there was not uh, a fungicide applied preventatively, you know, within the last, say, 10 days or so, we're definitely seeing activity. Number one. Uh, number two, you know, with it not being so hot and it's just more of disease stress or, or um, disease pressure, I should say, that the grass still looks pretty good. You know, the healthy turf looks really good because it hasn't, it's not really endured those multiple different stresses, right? So it's when we compound heat stress with drought stress with disease pressure and there's all these compounding factors that add up and just make it look bad. Now, I don't know and haven't followed all that closely with what you face. So, you know, have you seen, you know, kind of those compounding issues and or stresses out there, say over the last three or four weeks? Yeah, we, um, we had basically only one stretch of rainfall this entire spring and it happened all in about a set of four days. And so we got probably about two inches of rain during that time frame. And that's when I had some disease show up in the fescue at that point. And then everything has dried out since then. But so there wasn't really any rain before that. Hasn't been any rain after that. The humidity has come up in the last couple of days. Um, I was gone over the weekend and my wife was home and I was kind of checking on some of the watering and stuff. And I, the humidity was actually down quite a bit over the weekend and it was hot. So I was kind of a little worried by the time I got home some of the backyard had some spots that were wilting a little bit, but it's it's come back with some water on that. But the humidity now has gone back to like Midwest humidity for summertime. And so the problem is just that our forecast looks like the same going forward with 90s for temps. And I don't really see any sort of rainfall coming um, anytime soon. And that's going to get a little interesting with those temperatures as they continue into the summer because we're pretty early summer right now. Yeah, so looking at your weather, and, and, and this is something I always tell folks, is that as important as the, the daytime temperatures are, two things that I in most professional turf managers would look at is, one, the nighttime lows, right? So if we're on cool season and we've got nighttime lows at 70 or above, that's danger zone, right? That's something that we know that we're going to get a lot of pressure, very, very high pressure, particularly for brown patch and turf type pole fescue, very susceptible to brown patch. And even if we're selecting uh, resistant varieties, it can still be kind of a crapshoot with that high of pressure. Other thing that we're looking at too is uh, waterborne pathogens, specifically pythium and pythium blight. And so when we, when we consider these types of conditions, it's all about what your preventative strategy is, right? And so, you know, I've seen folks, you know, that have been messaging and emailing me and saying, oh, hey, you know, I'm going to get the the disease X out and things like that. And it's like, you know, you're you're already behind the eight ball and, and you're trying to cash in the chips, you know, when you're already kind of down and out. And so this is one, you know, weather pattern that you, you got to be in front of it and and to say that you know you can't do anything right now well you can spray something right now and have moderate success right but the thing i want to 
caution folks too, and this is a good point for you, uh, RK, is you know you saw a disease and you you sent me pictures and it was very very clear that you had um, disease issues out there, and so people will think that well if I spray a fungicide I'm gonna I'm gonna stop it I'm gonna make it better and really all you're doing is just stopping it, you know fungicides thinks that it makes it sound like you're killing all the pathogen that's in there and really all you're doing is preventing it from infecting more turf right right so the the stuff that we're and, and particularly the stuff that we're allowed to use as homeowners on residential turf is not such that it's going to kill kill a whole lot right we, we've had a lot of those products taken away and they're exclusively either in the professional market or they're no longer used in turf grass and so we're at a competitive disadvantage when it comes to these situations. And so if you're not on a preventative program, it's going to be tough and you're going to see disease and you need to either recalibrate your expectations, right? And what you're willing to accept uh, or spend the money and the time and be on top of this. And it really is about monitoring that weather. So monitoring those uh, nighttime lows. And then the other key point here that uh, I'm kind of long way of getting there is the dew point, right? So when we see dew points north of, say, 65, when we, and we've talked about this before, Ryan, in a, in a YouTube video, um, that's also danger zone, too. That means that there's a lot of moisture in the air, right? And we're really, really humid. And so the thing that I'm looking at, too, on your forecast is once you get to the weekend here right now, just on, I'm just looking at uh, nighttime lows. It looks like it's cooling off at night, which tells me that you're going to have some drier air working in, hopefully. Yeah, it was uh, looking like um, it was actually this weekend's weird. The, the wind is supposed to switch to the north, so it's supposed to be some drier kind of air coming in, but yet 90s. So that's also where I kind of watch for if it's going to be just how much moisture you lose every single day on ET and... No, that's a great point, and that's that's the other side of this, right, is that you know, heat and, and moisture stress, drought stress, when we start compounding those things, that can be a problem. So you're absolutely right that you go from this mindset and mantra that, man, it's humid, it's humid, it's humid, I can't water, I really need to be judicious with that. And we really didn't even get to that. That's a that's a great topic of yeah. yep. how, to, how, to, how to water and, and manage your way through that, right? Of putting down just enough, but not too much and things like that. Like that's, that's a deep dive topic in, its, in and of itself. But yeah, when you flip the script and go to lower humidities, right? And, and this is what I, you know, was always taught and, and still observe and, and, and tell other folks is that, you know, when it's comfortable for humans and when it's comfortable for us, it's uncomfortable for the grass, right? Because they, the, those plants are losing water much, much faster than they would in a very humid and moist environment. And so that's that's one where, you know, it feels like, oh, the temperature's up. It's 90 degrees. I shouldn't water when it's that hot. But it's like between the heat and the wind and the relative humidity and the sunlight, you're losing a considerable amount of water each day. And you've got to either replace that, right, with irrigation or hope that you get rainfall if you're unirrigated. And so that's a, that would be a good uh, masterclass podcast, right, of, you know, irrigation strategies through the summer relative to the weather because that's really yep. what it's all predicated on. Well, that's what was crazy about last weekend when I was gone because I was looking at the, you know, it was mid-afternoon and my wife said, did you water this morning? And I said, yeah, I turned, you know, I had everything set to my normal like sort of summer thing where 
when we get some humidity and I don't really need to put down as much as you would think you do. And so mm-hmm. I had that set, I had it run and she was like, uh, yeah, well it still doesn't look like, like it doesn't look like it did it. So I was looking that day midday and it was probably like upper eighties, but the dew point was like 45 and oh, the God. humidity was like, you know, 37% or something. And I was like, Oh crap, I gotta, I gotta fix this. So I, I ran an yeah. extra cycle that the next day, but, yeah, and, the, and again, those are times where you know you, that that ET number is a great metric for that. If you can find um, you know a local calculation for that, or use the calculators that are online to do that for you, a wonderful, wonderful tool to try and figure out and help you quantify. Okay, hey, if I'm observing these types of weather conditions, how much water is actually exiting the soil right through evapotranspiration? So that's Again, we talk about this in the YouTube video. It'd be great to throw a link up in the in the show notes here, but evapotranspiration, right? So evaporation is number one. So as we get solar heating from the sun, as we get wind passing over the soil and the turf, right, we're, we're losing water out of the soil. The other component, though, is on those dry days, the plant's going to use more water, right? So it's going to transpire. And again, if you if you uh, missed botany or um, don't remember how uh, transpiration works, it's literally the way that the plant cools itself off, right? So as it takes water in through the roots, it passes it up through the leaves. It's um, expelled as a gas, right? And it's basically the plant's way of sweating. You know, as humans, we sweat to cool ourselves off, cool our bodies off. And the plant is no different, except it just does it in a slightly different way. And so by converting that... Um, water energy into a gas right or that state of uh, water from a a liquid to a gas the plant actually cools itself off now again using more and more water those two things those two components mean that there's a certain amount or certain volume of water that leaves the soil and so these evapotranspiration rates are actually expressed as precipitation rates so you might say that hey today we lost uh, 0.22 inches of water uh, for ET or evapotranspiration. And what that means is if you're going to replace everything that was lost through number one, evaporation of water through the soil, and number two, transpiration of water through the plant, you would have to put back the equivalent of 0.22 inches of precipitation through irrigation or through uh, actual precipitation from the sky to get back to whole, right? And again, I, we could go in the weeds real deep here, RK, but. <laughs> It's a, it, it, you got me going for a second, but watering, uh, you know, well, this is yeah, one thing, it's, under, it's, it's, it's underdone, it's, it's, a, it's a really undersold, I don't even, undersold is a bad word, Brian, don't do that, <laughs> um, I hate when I make r- poor word choice, like, you know, um, I, I, that's, a, that's a way too deep of a reference, it's way too old of a reference, nobody's going to get it, but anyhow, um, yeah, it's, it's something that, you know, we try to spray our way out. So oh, I'm going to put hydrogen out or I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. Hey, I'm not saying that those are bad products, but I'm also saying that if you don't water correctly, it ain't going to mean a damn thing. Yeah. What you're well, spraying out there. And that's what I wanted to touch on as a couple things is one, I don't know if you saw, but I'm pretty sure, I think it was in Northern Illinois last weekend, they hit like an ET of 0.4 in one day. I think it was. Holy shit. Yeah. So I saw that somewhere and I was like, oh, we need to talk about that. But two was... Your point is great there because so many people have their irrigation system set to 
whatever it was set to when the people put it in or, and I just made a quick video about this this morning and I did a little test last night and I'll talk about that in a second. But um, basically like last weekend when I saw that happening, I had to water three days in a row, like because I was falling behind in that day that I didn't do the extra watering and it was so hot and we lost so much moisture. Had I just run my system, like I'm not paying attention to anything and I'm just like, oh, I water on Tuesdays and Thursdays and for (laughs) 20 minutes per zone. I mean, that's not going to cut it. It's not going to work. So, you know, that's, that's a good point there that you really need to be on top of that stuff. But the experiment that I did last night was I don't have irrigation in the backyard, which is still a big pain in the ass. And it, it, it's something that I'd like to change, but then I'm sort of like to, well, at this point, do I really go to the work of doing it for not so much of a long-term plan here at my house? But I don't know. We'll see. But I just used my impact sprinkler out there. So I had that set up and I had it run like early morning for like two hours. And I put out those little sprinkler things, like the little, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in various little zones to see what I was actually putting down. Now, so many people have always said, oh, I watered my yard for a half an hour. Like, that has to be enough water. Well, again, so I put it out two hours. And in the one section, probably about midstream, I got only like a quarter of an inch of water that came out of that. And then the, towards, really? the, towards the end of the stream, I was like just a little over a half an inch. So there's a difference there, obviously, of the spray pattern not being that great. But two, you know, so many people use a sprinkler or especially like a, you know, like one of those fanning sprinklers or something. And it's... You're just like, you're not putting out much water. I know you think that you've run it for like an hour and you're like, oh, that has to be a lot. Well, not necessarily. So, well, and is it getting down? So, like, there's so much too that goes into that of, you know, what are our percolation rates? Like, is, you know, what's the composition of our soil? So, is it, you know, a sandier or more coarse soil where water is going to more easily uh, infiltrate that soil and then percolate down through into our root zone? Is it a heavier soil that's more clay or silt based that, we're not going to have as high of an infiltration rate and that's not going to have as high of a percolation rate. And so that also changes the watering strategy. So it's a, you know, we, we really should break that down in, in, in as much as you really can. I mean, th- because there are a lot of variables and things that go into it, but a, a proper watering video. And I th- I see a lot of people that will say, Oh, you know, this is how you program your sprinklers or this is how you do this or that. And, I'm not saying they're wrong, folks. I'm not saying they're wrong, right? But if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably trying to do just a hair better than okay, average, good, exactly, fair to midland, yeah. any of that, yeah. right? Like you're you're really trying to take it to the next level. And so, hey, you know, if you want to take uh, some YouTubers' advice or read, you know, some, uh, you know. New Yankee Workshop, Bob Vila bullshit article. Fucking, you know, go for it. I don't care, but I'm not sure that you're going to be happy at the end of it because that whole uh, set it and forget it shit is for um, you know crappy meat that comes out of a toaster oven and not your lawn. That's one so. of the most difficult things about you know making a seven seven to ten minute video on YouTube about anything is. It's just very difficult to go through all of the possibilities, all of the differences in just in climates and soils. Like it's just, it, yeah, it, it's a hard thing to do. So, and I think that might be the, the 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 entry point, though. It might be just that, hey, this is a very high level primer. 
you can get from it what you will. But if you want to dive in deeper, you got to come listen to the cast. And hey, hey, like, because it, it would legitimately, um, if even an hour or two is not going to necessarily be enough. But I know that we can distill it down for the folks that are willing to take that time. So that's that's uh, mm-hmm. good food for fodder because I know we had we had the one of our first um, our first dates, you know, in, in our relationship was the. <laughs> I, I don't know where you're going. I don't know where you're going with this. <laughs> was the the heat stress video? Oh yeah, yeah, that yeah, was that we was were, the first it, date. Yeah, yeah. Shit. I think yeah. I think we went to Sonic afterwards or something. It was really romantic. <laughs> I'm kidding. We were we were a thousand miles away from each other, so we couldn't go to Sonic. RD and I have never met in person to this day. That's true. Yeah, that's true. So. When we do. Uh, they will have to carry us out of the establishment that we do meet. <laughs> carry us, literally. It will be, um, it will be a sight to see. Yeah, It'll I think be, so. Yeah. We'll have to do a live episode at some point. Uh, oh my god, that would be amazing. Yeah. So okay, so we're back to the the things I heard out of that were, um, you made you made it through the dry stretch. It's hot now. And the fescue is in rough shape in the back. Yep. How 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 happy of an accident is that now? Is Bob Ross crying because you didn't that your accident's no longer happy or what? Well, here's what I want to talk to you about. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't. I looking at my soil test when we looked at that before. There's nothing really abnormal back there or anything crazy. But I've just never had very good luck growing really fantastic grass that like withstands a lot of stuff and has the color that I think it should have. And so I I don't know if it's just something specific back there going on, but no matter what I've done to it, it still looks very underfed. It still has no like dark green color to like, you know, I mean, it's high end fescue. It should have some pretty good color. It's not like I'm cutting it super short either by any means. Yeah, And so it confuses me as to why that's happening. Um, you know, I probably have now in the spring, uh, let's see, about probably like a pound and a half of N on it in the spring. Oh, wow. And that's quite a bit. And it's still yeah. just, it didn't, it doesn't really grow that much. It, it's just sort of right now is sitting there like wanting to croak. And I'm like, what's going on with this? Hmm. And I mean, this is something too that, um, so when you're you were establishing, I mean, you were you were watering that to get it established, right? Like I know you said mm-hmm. there's irrigation back there, but you yeah, yep, used hoses and sprinklers and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I I think part of this is I found this to be true, and and it would be great. I wish there was like, uh, well, I, I, we'll we'll ask that question in a second. I've always found that tall fescue, especially new tall fescue coming out of its first winter is always just kind of a, a lazy slow starter, just uh, can't get its act together, whatever, you know, I mean, those are really non-scientific terms that would probably grate me if somebody else was saying it, but yeah, it, it kind of fits here. And so I'm wondering how much of a, an effect between that and just the really herky jerky weather Right. That you've had has has played a role in this, and so you know I'd be anxious to see if you continue to just stay the course through summertime, get yourself to fall, 
Um, and hopefully you don't have a summer this year like you did last year because that would be awful and, and, and detrimental, no question. But I think that that fall you should really see, number one, some good results, right, in terms of color, density, all those things, but also, you know, also the effect that um, it's a little bit more consistent and predictable in terms of if I do a one pound per thousand, you know, rate of N, with urea or ammonium sulfate, I'm going to get this response, right? Right. It's going to be growing out, you know, growing out the ass, and I just can't keep up with it. So I, I might knock it down to a half a pound. Right now, it sounds like you could put a pound out there, and you wouldn't be able to say at all, with any reasonable degree of certainty, what is going to happen. Right, and that's that's what's weird. But what's weird about it too is that the bluegrass that I had back there before would act the same way. It would be very like two or three weeks out of the year, it would be like, oh, this is the most amazing thing. Like, <laughs> look-wise, it's perfect. And then the rest of the time, I'd be fighting it for some unknown reason. Like, it just wouldn't have the color. Or especially when I got to summer, it just looked like garbage all the time. But it wasn't the best of the best cultivars of bluegrass. I mean, there were some of the decent ones in there. That, they were still, like, middle of the road, but they weren't, like, absolute best. But... It just was so strange, and it's kind of acting the same way. So I'm confused as to why I don't see the responses that I should be. Like you said, you know, I put down a ten, ten, ten towards when it wasn't doing anything. Like it just wasn't responding to anything. That was probably early May ish. I put down close to a pound. I was just like, let's see what happens, and. It just it didn't really it didn't do that much. It, the color didn't really get that much better. It didn't really grow like crazy because everyone told me they're like, wait till you get to the flush, and it's gonna be growing like two inches a day, and it never happened really. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, that could be. You know, again, I'm not sure what your uh, OM level is back there, but that could be something where it's high. You know, you've got now. Uh, that's. Uh, that definitely could be an issue then because it could be that you're just not putting enough nitrogen down. Yeah, it's like five. I think it was like five, three. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so then we're going to pick up the pace and lower the uh, amplitude of your nitrogen apps, okay, and see what we can do here because I'd be interested if you were like quarter to a third, a third of a pound every, you know, say – 14 to 21 days and just bump it along here a little bit and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'd really love to go to like foliar too, like, you know, starting to do something like that. The issue is just, it's such a pain in the ass to cover that whole space with, with having no sprinklers to turn on that I have to, you know, when I put down an app and I'm like, I want to water this in, it's hard to do. So that's what I've been dealing with in terms of that, like wanting to, try some different things and wanting to spray some different things. But then I'm like, well, I really need to do this properly. Uh, Cause that's where I got myself in trouble last year. I did. Oh God, it was way too high of a rate of micros on the bluegrass. And oh, I didn't, ha I didn't have any way to water it in. I, cause it was supposed to freaking rain, but you know how that goes. And that's when I just pretty much burnt it pretty bad last year. And it never recovered from that because I also had PGR on it at that same time, and it was like no, didn't go yeah, well. Was a, yeah, I was a, yeah, that's no good. And so, like I said, I'd be interested to see with trying to counteract that high OM because what the, you know people at home might be saying, well, what the hell does that have to do with it? Well, 
you know, we get back into carbon and nitrogen ratios, right? And especially on high OM soils, which if you're north of four, it's pretty high. If you're north of five, it's really high. So what that means is that the um, amount of carbon that's there to basically, for lack of a, a to just to keep it simple, soak up all that nitrogen, right? is such that it's going to limit the amount that's plant available. And so I think it would be interesting, even if you took half the yard, right, and just messed around with it a little bit and just said, okay, hey, we'll, we'll bump this along and then see what happens with, you know, quarter to third pound rates every, you know, 14 to 21 days and see if it makes a difference in the next six or so weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to do. And like you said, the issue is going to become our weather, how hot it's going to get, how much we do not get any moisture. And then, yeah, I mean, a combination of all those things because it's the west facing, like hot as hell all day long. So it's it's been difficult anytime I've had any turf back there cool season because of just baking all the time. But I am thankful for the humidity to be back. I never thought in my lifetime I would ever say those words, but... You said this last year, too. Good Lord, I can't handle it when it's like 90. I don't know how those people in the desert freaking have grass. When I was in Vegas, there was a golf course like not far away from where I was staying, and I was looking out the window every day, and I'm like, it was 108 outside. How the hell are they keeping any of that grass alive water-wise? I I wouldn't even want to go to the grocery store when it's 108 degrees. I mean, you know, I'll... uh, you know, I'll just get a couple extra napkins from Wendy's and wipe my ass with that. I don't need to go out and get toilet paper. Jeez, like that's just the wasted trip of me getting out of the air conditioning for goodness' some, sake. So some miserable stuff right there. But uh, oh, wait, 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 the heat or the wiping your ass with the Wendy's napkins? We're gonna leave it at. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say which one. I think. Maybe oh, okay. Both. Yeah, yeah. Yes is the answer. So the answer is correct. I just sent you a photo because um, I wanted to switch to the front yard real quick, which I'm also uh-huh. having a fun time with. So I sent you uh, a message with a picture. So All right. basically here you're going to see what most of the turf looks like, which is very lime green, the same kind of thing like I was dealing with last year. And then mm-hmm. there's a spot in the middle where there's obviously a dog spot and it looks really fantastic and not burnt. <laughs> so... I'm at that point again where there's a couple things going on. It just, I hit it. Remember last time we did the show, I had just bombed it with ammonium sulfate. And it responded to that pretty well. Once we got that rainfall for four or five days, then it was, clippings were like off the charts for like a couple days. But then Mm. everything fell off the, just fell off the face of the earth again. And it's just looked really gross ever since then. And so I'm kind of confused as to the same type of thing. Like, I don't know exactly. Maybe I'm still far behind on underfeeding it, kind of. I don't know. What's your in rate so far on this, oh, on the front? Oh, let me think. Uh, one, one, five, just like you were saying on the back? It's less, probably less. Yeah, so you might be undercooking it a little bit here. And, you know, when you go out and spray something as far as a foliar or soil applied product what is your top end rate and frequency of your because this is i mean and the other thing i want uh, you know i'm sure you'll link this picture up in the show notes so people can see and it's not like uh you know golf on the radio here <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um 
when I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, okay, like it doesn't look terrible. And then, yeah, I see the dog pee spot in the middle and it's like deep, dark. Oh yeah. It's like what I, what my yard is like in the fall time after, you know, any, that overseeding, it gets some, those new, the new grass comes out, it's fed, it's perfect weather. It's like, it'll be just dark green like that. And right now, everything else around it just looks really gross, honestly. And, and again, I'm only looking at a snapshot of it here, but I don't think it looks terrible. But, but you can see, if you zoom in there, you can see too, density and everything looks a lot different on that spot. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely something going on there. And so, I, you know, my my first reaction is, okay, hey, we've got perfect growing environment for Kentucky bluegrass. Let's let's give it what it wants, right? So let's increase our frequency and lower our rate on nitrogen applications, right? Any PGRs on this at all? Yeah, so now there's that's what I also wanted to say. So as soon as I hit that crazy amount of, it was probably growing an inch a day when we got that water, I was like, okay, wow. I better start my, like I better start a low rate of PGR to kind of get this under control. So I, I did a low rate. It was around 0.2, I think. Yeah. Okay. And that's what I wanted to also talk to you about is, I don't know why, but my lawn just hates T-Nex. Just absolutely, every time I use it, it hates it. It just... It looks hazy, that same sort of like thing when you over apply and it just doesn't grow at all. That's where I'm at right now. I haven't mowed for probably four days now and it just isn't doing anything at all. And what rate? Point two. Wow. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like it's not much. Right. I didn't put much on there. Hmm. So okay, so we're, we're point two, it's not moving at all. I'm I'm gonna say that it's you know, so from a fertilization point or point of view, it's time to to kick it up a notch here, and not as uh, some of our friends would say, is throw her down, uh, or even do it for America, but actually do it for the right reason. Um, as Lee Greenwood would say, "God bless the USA." <laughs> but uh, the to the extent possible that you can go out there and through whether you want to do it granular or you want to do it with spray but i really think that quarter pound every again i'll even i'll even drop it down to every 10 to 21 days right so every week and a half for three weeks a quarter pound of nitrogen my usual is about point somewhere in there like 0.15 to 0.2 uh, every two weeks. That's that's usually what I do. But I'm a little bit behind because I just didn't get started in the springtime. I was kind of like lagging along, waiting for, okay, well, we're going to get to spring, and then just never really consistently happened. So then I was like, didn't I hadn't applied anything, and now I'm like, oh, shit, I need to get going on this. But, yeah. No, it could be, and it could be very well that, Again, the weather is compounding things like that, right? So if we've gone from hot to cold and, and, and things like that, the bluegrass doesn't wake up until, you know, much later in the spring because of those temperatures. This and is now, rye. This is rye, by the way, too. Oh, this is rye. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Rye, right? But still, this, oh, even worse, right? Even yeah. worse that it's not going to wake up. So in, in this case here, it's, eh, 
I, you know, I, again, I, me and my point of view is I'm going to give it what it wants first and let's bump up the frequency, bump up the rate of nitrogen and see what happens here. So the other thing too, I would ask is same thing on the organic matter side. What does it look like in the front yard? It's a little bit lower. It's, uh, Oh, I'd have to look at my test again, but I think it was around like four somewhere. Right oh. there. Oh. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's, I think you're all in, I think you're on the, uh, um, the, the Ray plan, right. Of, uh, give it ammonium sulfate quarter pound, you know, one pound per thousand on the product or a little a slightly higher 1.05 and let that fly once every two weeks and just keep bumping along and then come in there with your, you know, uh, whether it's your simple lawn solution stuff, uh, the lawn care supply company stuff. I think there's a lot of good stuff that you can do right in terms of turning the tide with some of those other products uh, with using, Ammonium sulfate is your base as a nitrogen source. Yeah, grower is uh, is the seventeen zero seventeen that I'm just going to get going on with that one because that's ammonium well, sulfate, and then you know, of course, I got to keep my potassium is not ever hasn't been super high anyway, so it never will be. Yeah, trust me. Yeah, ever. <laughs> so can, I, I always go after that too. Yeah, you can carpet bomb that, and it's never going to work, but. You know, for the way that grower is built um, with the um, potassium acetate in there, I think you're going to find it does a little bit better, if I'm remembering that product correctly. The yeah, there. I also have, we have um, resistor as the potassium only one that's like the foliar mm-hmm. one. Um, gotcha. So you can, I have a combination of things I can kind of throw together. Yeah, that would be ideal, and I think that's the most important thing is choosing the right source at the right time because, um, you know, like, for instance, like with the um, potassium acetate, the foliar products that we use sometimes is people use that as their only means of a potassium source, and it's like, well, it's a really high-quality source, and, you know, it gets in the leaf, and it's so much better. It's like, yeah, but... You, you still have to get some of the plant and the benefit of that washing off the leaf and getting actually into the plant is pretty much slim to none. So you, you really need to kind of hedge your bets there in terms of what can actually be done and um, how often you're spraying it. That's the other thing too is m- much of the time people are like, oh yeah, you know, go out every, you know, month or two. It's like, well, yeah, not, no. that, that, that's, that's not going to work either. Like you got to, you're going to have to be on there either more frequently with the foliar products or uh, understand what some of the limitations are with, you know, longer term products. So let me pull this up real quick. I was going to be sacrilegious too, a little bit. I was thinking, cause I picked some up from uh, the old fleet farm today. What'd but, you get? Uh, I bought some of their uh, no name brand Melorganite um, knockoff. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to put a little bit of this on there too. Oh boy! <laughs> oh boy! You're you're buying discount cocaine now, Ryan Orr. What are yep. you doing? Yep. What are you doing? Um. Okay, I'm looking at the Grow War label. Ooh, this this is a nice product. That that I one mean, is uh potassium or the potassium, potassium nitrate. Is nitrate. Yeah, yeah. Like you should definitely get 
definitely get some plant response out of this. I mean, like without any question, problem, issue, soil, whatever, weather, anything like that. Like if you put this down um, at one to one and a half pounds per thousand and you know, run a little bit of irrigation on it three, four hours after you put it down, it is going to light up. That's what I was going to ask you is, you know, just to make kind of, or so the viewers get what source, or when you're using ammonium sulfate, especially as it gets hot, you know, it can get kind of a little bit dicey in some situations. So what should you do just to be safe with something like that, especially when you're spraying in like hotter weather maybe? So a couple of things. One, spray at night or spray early in the morning. And when I say night, I mean like dusk. Yeah. Okay. I love that time frame anyway. It is. It's 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 dry turf. You know what you're going to get. So a couple of uh, best management practices as far as this goes is, number one, um, if you can't see your lines or something like that, just give it a quick spot. Or if your turf is really dry, um, give it a quick spin or two with your with your heads first then go out and make your spray. And then ideally, you'd like to let that sit for somewhere between two and four hours, right? And what you're doing there is getting as much ammonium into the plant as you possibly can, right? From our ammonium sulfate source. And then the rest is going to get washed off at the time of three or four hours in after application and work down the soil and become root absorbed at that point. Now, a couple of things here is that if you have... Uh, stressed turf from heat, drought, disease, whatever the case might be, I would strongly encourage you to hold off. Uh, and this is why if you're unirrigated, it can get tough because you have zero control or very little control over when your turf gets stressed versus when it doesn't because of some of these things. So for those of you that are fortunate enough to have in-ground irrigation uh, or are uh, the type of go-getters that will move a hose around and take care of an entire yard just on that manual, um, you, know, you know, will to succeed type of uh, mentality, then in those cases, again, it's trying not to apply it to really stressed turf because you can see some, some uh, phytotoxicity, some damage from it. So my recommendation would be ideal scenario if you have irrigation, you know, you go ahead and you give it a quick spin of the heads just so, you know, there's some water on the leaf, right? And you go out there and you apply it and you want to make sure that your carrier volume is at least one gallon per thousand. Uh, some people will tell you that you can go less, but I would strongly encourage you to be at least at one gallon. And the reason I say that is because that's uh, a more dilute concentrate of fertilizer that you have in your tank relative to if you had it at, say, 0.75 gallons, you know, so 25% more concentrated or uh, 0.5 gallons per thousand, 50% more concentrated than our one gallon rate. So the carrier volume is just as important from a safety factor and two from an efficacy factor because we want to make sure that we get that on the leaf as much as possible and have as little drip off as possible down to the soil. We want to maximize the plant uptake foliarly first, then get it down into the roots after that. So you know, the morning can work as well, but I give it that three or four hour time window and then wash it off. You know, so run an irrigation set if you have in-ground irrigation. If you are um, unirrigated and you're trying to time this up with rain, I can know it can be dicey in the summertime because we get, you know, pop-up showers and things like that that we either don't plan for or 
like what Ryan, you know, RK said, we're, we're hoping, oh, hey, it's going to rain today. It's like a 90% chance. And it completely misses us. You know, so those are the type of things we run into on unirrigated. Um, so with that being said, I, I think it's something that if you can move a, a sprinkler around and make those apps, it would absolutely behoove you much more so than a granular app because I think you can get more out of it, right, with those lower rates and more frequent applications. And certainly it's more work on that side of things. Um, but you can you can also reap the rewards of uh, a spoon feeding approach that is, you know, more accurately metering out one the fertilizer and giving it a plant only what it needs when it needs it, as opposed to just taking a big slug of some, you know, thirty or forty percent or whatever slow release bullshit that gets shipped to your door that has a bunch of stuff that you also don't need in it with the end. So yeah, yeah. That's my soapbox diatribe on that one. Sorry. No, it's definitely you're you're right. It's it's a lot more work, and some people you know will never go down that route just because of time, and I, and I understand that. But for those of you listening or people who probably are wanting to go to the next level, it's definitely the way, especially on my low cut turf. That I mean, it just it wouldn't work any other way, really. Honestly, like just throwing out a bunch of granular and just waiting for it to release at some unknown time frame. It's just a, it's not going to. It's not going to go too well for so. Uh, well, and it's, yeah, and especially if you can't be on top of the mowing and everything like that. Like I think that's one thing that gets lost on the whole "quote unquote" real low crowd. Not not all everybody, but it's like you're ratcheting up the degree of difficulty on all facets of your program, right? From cultural practices to mowing to everything. So take that into account. It's not just simply like buying a new mower and dropping the height down and saying, Hey, it's cool. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're, you know, you just sharpen the razor up pretty thin there and you better be able to skate on thin ice. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. It's, it's one of the things that I think I get the most messages about on Instagram and stuff like that. Like, Oh, I want to do this. And you know, what, what graph should I put in and how do I do? And is it just mowing? And no, no, like, it's not just mowing. There's there's a little more to it than that. And I, I probably don't paint a good enough picture about that on my YouTube channel as to what goes into all of that. But honestly, for the masses, it's just not that interesting to most people. They're kind of like, yeah, great. You apply too much shit to your yard. Screw you, Ryan. And I'm like, well... I say that all the time to you, much. No. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I try to show some of it. I don't show everything, but... Um, yeah, so going back to the drought thing for a second, let's just hypothetically say that things continue the way that they have been here and throughout a lot of the regions. Um, what types of things can people do and or let's say they, you know, something I wanted to talk about was watering restrictions as that's become a lot more commonplace in a lot of places as to what can people do in that situation and or if they just decide I'm not going to water or I can't water because of restrictions or something else, budget, whatever it is, what kind of things, you know, can grass withstand for cool season? Um, and what can't it withstand? So it's, um, yeah, that's a, that's a deep question there too. So, okay. Um, first on the watering restrictions part is definitely have your irrigation system dialed in. you know, RK made up a great point about, the disparity just in terms of nozzle coverage between one area and another. And so what I mean by that is if I was on a watering restriction, whether it be based on gallons or times or days of the week or things like that, like 
I would get much more hyper focused and local. And I know this sounds really, you know, cumbersome and um, a heavy lift for some folks, but I'd be hand watering a lot more, right? Like I would rely less on your irrigation system because as great as that is to have in the ground and, and, and everything like that, and as easy as it makes things during uh, certain times of the year, it's not all that accurate. Like generally speaking, it's not very accurate. Like the best systems in the world, they're trying to achieve 90% distribution uniformity on those systems, right? So they're already built into the fact that the best systems in the world are going to be 10% um, inefficient. So you think about that and, you know, RK, I'm sure you could tell the story again about the install for yours, but it's, you know, uh, you know, Larry, Darrell and Darrell show up with a pickup truck and a trencher um, and a vibratory plow in your front yard. And it's like, oh, hey guys, like you're here to install yeah <laughs> where y'all where y'all want these heads like wow where should we put them i don't know got this measuring tape right here don't tell us where it's gonna go and uh it kind of devolves from there and so again my recommendation there is one make sure your irrigation system is tuned up uh and you know what it's putting out per zone at least if not per head within each zone so you know where your inefficiencies lie and the reason i say that is leads into number two is the ones where that you do have uh, some inefficiency or a lot of inefficiency those are ones where you're going to need to supplement with a hose and this is not unlike uh, what we do in uh, professional golf course maintenance or things like that like we're you know we're looking at how can i put the least amount of water down to get the best result and I think for a homeowner, it's sort of the same thing, right? Because nobody likes paying their water bill. Like, there's nobody super excited to send that check in or make that automatic bill payment from their bank account. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. I just gave the I just gave the water company an extra four hundred dollars this month. That's awesome. Like, there's nobody saying that. So then it gets back into okay, you don't have irrigation, right? So you've you've taken off the table the ability to number one um, understand a baseline what your efficiencies are. Number two supplement that and overcome or mask those weaknesses through hand watering so now i don't have irrigation so my options are one pull a hose out or two um let it ride you know let it let it ride and see what happens and i don't know that there's many people that do this often uh, or want to do it but you also have to take into account as well that there are periods right there are times that we need to still keep that plant alive, right? So as the plant begins to go dormant, right, in the middle of summer because of uh, drought stress, just like us when we become hypothermic or something like that, or, um, you know, our body begins to shut down at the limbs, right? So in this case, it's going to be leaf braids, it's going to be roots, it's going to be things like that, and really concentrate the energy and the effort to sustain and survive into the crown and the growing point of the grass, right? Right, and sort of the midsection or what would be considered our torso or thorax. So it, when we get really, really, really low in water, this is something that I would definitely look at supplemental irrigation. Like if it's a fine turf area and it's a, you know, a high visibility, high value area for you, and we go more than, again, I would generally say a good general way without getting too deep in the weeds, two weeks is a good way of, 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 you know, if you don't have any rainfall for two weeks, 
go ahead and light that sucker up with a um you know just a regular hose end sprinkler and try to see what you can do to push moisture back into that soil. So with that being said, the other thing is, you know, people often talk about wetting agents and uh, certain soil surfactants that can help them hold water better in the soil. Now, Ryan, have you tried any of these with any degree of success? Yeah, I've got, uh, I use the uh, aristocracy on the low cut stuff last season, and I have one app done. I'm probably ready for another app of that. I'm I'm getting close to the time frame on that, and also um, we've got something similar with uh, the soaker product um, that the wetting agent that we came out with um, with that one too. But yes. Uh, it's not something that I ever really did too much on the taller cut stuff. It was only something I focused on with the lower stuff because it's just it's my high maintenance area. But yeah, and so those are the different types of wedding agents that you'll find out there in the market. Of what does it actually do for me, and what am I getting out of it? So you know the way to think about this, and I wish there was a better way to explain it because this isn't like. 100% legit. This is more of the way that it's been marketed and presented. And they certainly have properties that support each of these two behaviors in soil, but it's not just a cut and dry, like, hey, this one is one or it's the other. So, what I want to say there is, um, you know, we have different types of wetting agents that will help water infiltrate and penetrate the soil. And then we also have wetting agents that will help hydrate the soil. So, again, hold water in place in that root zone uh, column. And so with that being said, you know, some of the ones that are commercially available that we see people using quite frequently are ones that are more for hydration, which are fine and good, but I'm not sure that everybody has the same issue of, Hey, if I can't get that stuff down into my soil to infiltrate and really push and percolate down through, I'm wasting my time. And so a lot of times I see these being used predominantly in native soil situations when, in fact, they were developed mainly for golf greens, like on you mm-hmm. know, sand or modified root zones. And I'm not always sure that you're really seeing the bang for your buck on some of those. And so the ones that are more of what we call penetrance, right, have we've seen better luck with those on finer textured soils. So, again, clay soils sil- and, and silt soils um, to the extent that we can get water into some of those soils that are really, really difficult to one, get water in or two, re-wet once they've dried back out. And I think that's something that there's a little bit more promise in the marketplace for, you know, the, the average homeowner, the lawn care operator, something like that. Now you mentioned a product by name called Aristocracy. That's a product that's made by a, a company called Helena. And, yeah, I, I know I don't. I don't think you do have any type of stake or anything like that with the, these guys. It's just nope. you use their stuff. Yeah, they, yeah uh, so. there's a there's just a place here in Des Moines where they have like an office, and so I was like, oh, what should I get? And yeah, yeah. Did they tell you that you know you need to get the regular kind of wedding agent? They didn't tell me anything. I just <laughs> yeah. They were like, yeah, wait, you want what? Aristotle? Wow, who the hell are you? that's probably probably, or you walked out of there and they were like man who was that guy so um (laughs) that's uh 
I'm trying to remember. There was a Chappelle line skit, or I think it was from like an SNL where he was like, "Look, look, you know, the guy from uh, YouTube is at the uh, the wedding agent store." It's like, no, you dummy. The guy from the wedding agent commercial on you, uh, you know, on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. He's the guy that's at the you, at the uh, at the store here. It's like, man, I'm famous. Um, but in any regard, it's it's one of those things where um, I think the penetrating ones, penetrating wedding agents, have much more validity in our type of applications. When we talk about home lawns, uh, commercial turf, lawn care operators, things like that, there's much more to give there. And so the the question might come: Okay, well, when do I put that down? And this is this is what can be tricky, right? Is that you if you don't have irrigation, you really want to time this up with the rain. And even if you do have irrigation, it's such that you probably don't have the volume uh, or the time to push that stuff down nearly as far as you need. And so that would be one too where it might behoove you to just wait until okay, hey, I know I've got a rain coming, or hell, I've taken these things out in the rain and applied them and had great success. Oh yeah. So um, you know, again everybody's always like man it's raining outside there's nothing to do on the lawn bullshit get out there and spray some <laughs> wedding agent dog you got this you know so yeah there was a just... product i used on my truck last year that was uh like basically it needed to be applied when the vehicle was wet so it was raining outside and uh i was like out there you know putting on this wax and whatever and my wife's like what the hell are you doing i was like it says it has to be when it's wet i'm just getting free water might as well you know might as well go after it, but all your neighbors are like, "Holy shit, he's on!" You know, he's 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 graduated to the next drug. Like you, you took the next step in the gateway. You know, <laughs> the guys out there filming YouTube videos on the lawn, and now he's out there in the rain washing his truck. Yeah, nothing would surprise them anyway. So that's that's fine. Well, but, that's in the, isn't it going to be nice when you don't have neighbors anymore? Oh man, on on, on the new property, what are you going to do with yourself? Uh, like mean, go sit under the trees and just do nothing <laughs> it's probably gonna you're, you're i mean i'm I'm picturing a uh you know because i'm sure there's a a female contingent out there that watches you is you might have to have the uh you know ryan nor only fans lawn care where it's just you and a you know banana hammock doing <laughs> uh yard work and i'm sure they would pay handsomely for that that's not what handsomely. i know that's not what i had in mind actually no well, not so you, much you, you, I think we need to do a couple focus groups on this and really dig deep. I would love to do, you know, I would love to head that up just to talk to the ladies and say, all right, Ryan Knorr, banana hammock, real mowing. Paint me a picture. And I could see, I'm sure, you know, they, they would love it. They would love it. No, I got my sweet, <laughs> I got my sweet farmer's tan that tells you about how much, uh, you know, I ever take off my shirt, which is not going to happen. So, uh, you know, going back to that, uh, I wanted to say one of the things that I scared the hell out of people with early on in my YouTube channel was I was, you know, trying to take care of my yard and then I didn't have any irrigation whatsoever at that point. So I let the bluegrass completely go dormant in like straw oh, dormant God. in the backyard back then. And they were like, I saw some posts and things and people were like, this guy doesn't know shit. Look at his yard. It's dead. And I was like, you just wait, my friends. And... That's one thing I did really like about bluegrass is if I mean it's gonna look like dormant Bermuda when you let it really go, but it does surprisingly bounce back really well. Yeah, and and the, you'll see that from the newer fescues as well. Is that you know that's that's one thing is that t- uh, you know tall fescue uses more water, right? So it it 
you know, that that's the way that sometimes it gets painted in a negative light is that, oh, it's such a water hog. You know, it, it takes up so much water. But it also is incredibly um, persistent in the way that it hangs on to that water once it begins to get dormant and how long it can go and how long it can sustain uh, a prolonged period of drought. Yeah. Versus a bluegrass, right? So bluegrass, like you said, it will go off color and go drought much droughty much quicker, but the bounce back on that stuff once you get a rain or once you make it rain with your sprinklers, you know, to the extent that you're putting out, you know, a, a substantial volume of water, so say a quarter inch or more, you're going to see a response, right? It's going to bounce back because water gets back in those tissues, the chlorophyll goes back in the leaf, and everything kind of looks all hunky dory. Maybe it takes a little bit, but it's also a self repairing grass, whereas tall fescue. One plant, one seed, bunch type grass. Yeah, you lose one plant, and that cascades through because of whatever issues you're facing from a drought stress perspective. And yep. yeah, it can get a little dicey there. No yeah. question. Yeah, the, I mean, at that same time when it was completely brown bluegrass, I have some spots back there of some. I don't know what type of fescue. It's probably it doesn't really look like Kentucky Thirty One, but it's just one of the real wided blade, you know, mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, that stuff was green as can be. It didn't care whatsoever. It was like, oh, I got this heat isn't nothing. It's, you know, it's nothing for me, but it's not exactly the greatest look either. So we'll see how it all turns out with the summertime. I'm, I don't know. It's it's, the way things are looking, it's going to be the exact same as last year. Like, not really much rain, hot as hell. And, it should be interesting to see what happens. I'm kind of getting a little bit of sponginess on that uh, side yard bluegrass ryegrass mix that I have cut real low too. I noticed the other day when I was looking at it, I kind of dug down in there a little bit. It's getting a little on the uh, kind of thatchy side. So, ooh, yeah. How old is that now? Uh, three years. Yeah, yeah. I've I mean, I've thinned been... it a little bit every season, like at the beginning of fall, but you know nothing like crazy, crazy. So. It's starting to get there. Time to phrase mo it, dog. Mm. Eh? Can't wait till uh, can't wait till the uh, the Nor Family Turf Farm has their own, uh, you know, deer, big deer tractor with a, a phrase mower on the back. Man, that'll be a beautiful sight. Yeah, it's feeling a little spongy today. Yeah, you know what? Hey, we're gonna set that phrase mower down about five millimeters and go take the top right off this <laughs> sucker. Right? Like, we'll get rid of that shit. How long does it take to bounce back? Um, you know, for bluegrass, anywhere, depending on the time of year that you do it, anywhere from roughly six to 12 weeks, right? So it really depends on weather and things like that. Some um, interesting work done at the University of Tennessee a couple of years ago. Uh, if you want to go look forward or folks that are listening want to go look at it, where they looked at um, using phrase mowing as a mechanical means to control POA, meaning that you know, Poe is a really, really, really shallow rooted plant. And so if we are ripping up the surface, right, we're ripping out a, a, a considerable population of the Poa that's present and carting it off, getting rid of it. So it is um, something that Tennessee investigated and they looked at uh, kind of a couple of different factors. One, how deep do you need to go to truly remove that poa and it was between five and ten millimeters if i remember correctly below surface and then also too it was time to recovery like so if we go out and do this on 
you know, May 15th, June 1, whatever the case might be, how long until we're back and playing again. So there is some pretty good data in there uh, for warm and cool season grasses. But I think that's 6 to 12 weeks range. The other um, thing I would note, it would be fun to look at for folks that might enjoy it. I think the blog is still up, but uh, a number of years ago, six, seven, eight years ago, there was a facility out in uh, Germantown, Maryland called the Soccerplex. And kind of a, a, a national gathering spot. They've got, uh, you know, probably like maybe eight or 12 full-size, very, very high-end pitches uh, that high-end travel and club soccer is played at. But what they do is they take like a, a kind of a European model where they will phrase fields out in the spring and the fall and then use both the rhizomes that are left behind from the uh, bluegrass and they'll come back in and overseed those with additional bluegrass and then also some perennial ryegrass. And in these case studies that they were doing, they were playing. This isn't just like, you know, a home one, like, hey, I can mow it and you can bring the kids out to, um, you know, play lightsabers or something like that on it. But this was actually like playing high-end soccer within 30 to 45 days after doing this. So that was the process was phrase mow it, Make sure you're on grade. Everything should be fine there. Uh, seed it, top dress in over top of it a little bit, you know, less than a quarter inch, and then let it grow in and continue to fertilize it through your growing. Really, really push it once it gets up and going. And then, yeah, they were playing on that stuff uh, four to six weeks after seeding. Wow. And so, yeah. So it, it's, you know, it's something that uh, can be a good tool. It's not necessarily for everybody because, yeah, you can screw some shit up with it there's no doubt i mean there's there's not a lot of room for error when it comes to when we're talking about um a five millimeter cut versus a 10 millimeter cut um but yeah you can have problems with it and you got to be careful just the same yeah so yeah so yeah so in that same area i think i definitely have some poetry like some bigger areas too that are kind of starting to show up a little bit. So I don't know. I might burn that thing to the ground before we get to fall and start <laughs> over. I kind of want to put some straight ryegrass in there, to be honest. I don't really like that mix that's in there. But we'll see. Sand level it, laser level. Oh, gosh. Here we go. Yeah. I, I can't imagine when you have like 35 acres of just nothing that you can be like, yeah, we're going to do this over here. And I know. Just go to town. Yeah. Dangerous. Yep. Dangerous. It, it will be. So did you end up doing uh, your renovation project at home? Oh, boy. We've got two of them going right now. Okay. Um, funny that you asked that. So uh, one is a bluegrass sod project, and the other one is going to be uh, sand cap Bermuda with drainage underneath. And so um, so the, the bluegrass project will probably be sodding here in about two weeks' time. Uh, we just have some final grades it was an interesting project because um there was a couple things that we didn't know going into it and so you know being the project manager i always want to know everything i possibly can and do all the discovery up front and we did that but then we got in there and uh, a couple things that we uncovered that were uh, quite troublesome number one uh so this is a high school football field and there's a track around it that's where they host all the track meets well the old pole vault pit used to be on the visitor's side uh, of the football field and when they abandoned it and did their new track all they did was just rip up the rubberized surface and the blacktop underneath 
and they left a 12-inch column of stone, of limestone there that was the base. And this was the entire, literally from about middle of the end zone to middle of the end zone all the way down because they had two pole vault pits right there. And so took all that stone out. Um, Had to be very, very careful with that because we had phrase mode the field. We had had literally taken all the grass out uh, and about eh, maybe half to three quarters of an inch of soil out just to remove POA and any other kind of contamination that we have. And so what we were left with is this big, huge cavity that now has to be filled, which I think uh, tomorrow we're on the docket to get that filled in with some of the good topsoil. And that was the fortunate part is, you know, we knew going in from the soil test that we had done both from a physical side and a uh, chemical side, that this was really tremendous topsoil. But I'm telling you, RK, when we started ripping this stuff up and then uh, tilling into it to put soil amendments in there, this is the deepest, richest, blackest soil I've ever worked with. Like, it's amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. Now, it's funny because the stadium is really old. Like, they've, they've, the school used to sit there right by the football stadium. And then maybe five, six years ago, they knocked all the schools down. They built them all on one campus. Uh, it's kind of a thing here in Ohio that they've been doing that. You know, so K through 12 is all in like, you know, several buildings right real close to each other. But the stadium is super old and, and, Dirt hasn't been turned over in 60 years, maybe. And so it was amazing getting to see that stuff because it's just beautiful soil. So the other issue that we ran into is, um, you know, we had designs to come back in after the sods established this fall, after football season's over and do some sand slit drainage and some of the other things that we typically do to give folks, um, you know, a surface that can play through all weather, you know, so rain, snow, soft conditions, firm conditions, whatever the case might be, and they'll be a little more consistent. But what we found when we went in there is um, irrigation lateral. So the, the pipes, you know, we had this conversation, I think RK, either the last or the one before on uh, irrigation layouts for yep. rectangle fields, was they ran them side to side, right? So they ran them sideline to sideline. But they buried these pipes about, this is no shit, maybe four inches below the surface. <laughs> Not good. So we knew it going in and we tried to come over top of it with the tiller and we're using a, you know, the, the contractor that's doing the work is using this big giant tiller. So they, you know, the first one they go over, they lift up like oh, as far as they can, they're just nicking the surface and they just grab the pipe and wrap it around this, uh, oh. this rotating shaft and just, it was, it was mangled. It was a mess. And so I uh, started looking at some of the other ones. There was one, I literally just with my hands, my even just my two hands, just lifted it right up out of the ground, like almost halfway across the field. So, so long story short, uh, those are getting replaced. There's new soil being imported, and then we'll go ahead and saw it. So it should be it should wrap up pretty easily. Uh, I'm excited about the sod because um, one, it's been it's it's uh, relatively it, it's just the right age. Like sometimes people try and push sod out the door at you know, like 10 or 12 months and it might not quite be ready yet. The sod here is uh, just a titch over a year and a half. So it's not like too super thatchy, but it's also got a good um, base of organic material that once we put that soil against uh, the good soil that's already there, that organic material is going to one, push a lot of roots down and two, it's going to serve as a base, right? So when people cleat in, cleat out with their football or soccer cleats, 
it should be a really really awesome uh, surface. But so, so they're doing native field, or they're doing native soil then, and no sand cap, or what are they? So we're gonna do this one. Uh, so it, it, the, on that Michigan State thing that that did the original work or research on the Spartan sand cap was mm -hmm. their method. So their method was drain tile on uh, minimum fifteen foot centers, and you put it in in a grid fashion down longitudinally along the field right so the water would only have to go so if you imagine again the crown and it's the field's breaking towards each sideline you know the water goes 10 to 15 feet it hits a drain line it falls in it gets carried off the field same thing another 10 or 15 feet gets carried off the field um what they also looked at too was well hey if you can't do a full sand cap and rebuild in one season can you what we, what they call a sand cap build up system how long and how aggressive, you know, how aggressive can you be and how long will it take you to build up what they consider to be um, a, a, a cap that is deep enough to then support a high level of play through any type of weather condition. And what they found was that you can literally do it in two years. So they, they were top dressing basically every five weeks starting in May when we, when we started to get into peak growth and they were top dressing um, once a month four times in a year. So they would get an inch down in year one, another inch down in year two, and then they would just do maintenance. So they would do, you know, maybe a quarter to a half an inch a year, depending on what the budget of that school was to continue to build up. But two inches is really the critical value of what they needed. So for this field here, this will be the first one that we're going to do that will be a build up system. So we'll build it on native and then we'll start top dressing and we'll get very aggressive as that sod starts to grow in terms of um, adding sand to the top layer. And then so the idea is, is that the sod roots in, gives us a good root structure and base inside the cavity of the field. We come back this November after football and soccer are all complete. And we add the sand slit drainage and then continue to build our cap up to get to at least that critical value of two inches, but probably continue to go beyond that. Yeah. So it's a little bit different. It's kind of like, you know, before it was bottom up in this case it's going to be top down and i'm i'm really intrigued to see how it works i mean i've seen good results from uh the michigan state approach to doing it but it takes commitment it takes time it takes money and all that kind of stuff that now um, this isn't is just a one-time deal this is just me being my uh you know being the way that i am about everything but Mm -hmm. How uh, concerning would it be that it's this season is going to be on native and, you know, like let's say there's a couple of mud games or something like crazy. Are they going to, you know, be worried about that and, you know, really damaging turf or ground in, this season when you don't have any? It's a great question. So there's there's three parts to the answer. Number one is that, we will be top dressing, so I would hope and expect that we have at least a half an inch of sand out there before they get started. Okay. And the research has shown that there's, you know, there's good enough uh, difference and transition in the playability that we see with at least a half an inch of sand on the ground relative to none. Second thing I would say is that, yeah, like, you know, um, if you're planning on playing a JV soccer game on a Wednesday night, then it's pouring down rain and you're just trying to get the game in, eh, you might think twice about that, right? Mm -hmm. it, is that really worth it? Um, and so there, there, there have been those conversations. And then the last part is 
they're fortunate and this is where it's like a, a site by site or school by school sort of uh, decision matrix is that they have no spring sports on that field all they play in, in spring is um, softball baseball for girls and boys that's it so if we needed to we would do a dormant seed have no qualms about leaving pre-emergent off at its two acres we can take care of post for any type of summer annuals and just handle it right so i would just let that field grow in get started and germinate and pop through the gotcha. winter time yeah that's a push bit, it in the spring it's a little more unique situation there because i was like uh just knowing what i knew like i told you about my my uh field back home which was basically no care but i mean football season alone would tear it to completely nothing and then they would just be like yeah well uh. <laughs> <laughs> no and that's that's the thing is like i i find that funny is because a lot of you know athletic directors or school superintendents or whoever you know whoever it is that i'm working with or for are always like well you know our only options are uh you know synthetic turf or a mud bowl and it's like well it, there's a pretty wide berth in between those two things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's what we're here to talk about. And, you know, Hey, if you want to get turf, great. If you want to play in a mud bowl, great. We can do that. Um, but you need to understand that there's a pretty wide berth in the middle there, uh, in terms of not just, you know, the safety aspect or the aesthetics, but just overall playability can be really, really so good. I assume that the, like the reason that somebody wouldn't go with, um, like a sand right away would just be the cost of, of everything. Plus like the cost of sand based sod and all that. Yeah. That was the really, that, that was the driver in this case is that Bermuda was taken off the table uh, as an option. And so then it became, okay, now to do this the right way, um, we have to use sand based sod over top of a sand cap versus literally making our own cap as we go up and then getting the root zone to be a hundred percent sand within at least that top two inches. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you take the cost of, and, and this is a great segue into the other field that is, you know, that are sprigs is, um, you know, this field is 85,000 square feet and sod sand based sod here into Columbus is somewhere between, um, 75 and 85 cents a square foot right now. Wow. So do the math on that. Right. And then, you know, we transition over to why it makes sense and it's easier to do sprigs. So I need on that same side, actually, this is a larger field. So this is a, a field that we're going to, uh, other field that we're working on right now will be a, um, a sand cap Bermuda field with sand slit drains underneath of it. And in this case, for sprigs, we need um, about 7,200 square feet. Uh, I, I don't have the math in front of me. I'm just, recalling I, I could do it and figure it out for you real quick 72 square hundred feet of sod to spring a hundred thousand square foot field yeah about the same cost on the sod about that 75 to 85 cents a square foot but literally less than 10 percent of the sod and so that's a complete game changer in terms of cost yeah for sure yep yeah so so yeah, those those decisions about grass, you know, yeah, sometimes it comes down to the cost and the initial stuff and everything like that. Um, but yeah, the 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 Bermuda thing, like, there's definitely a risk there because of you know being four seasons challenged here, just as you are out there in Iowa, right? Like, we have four distinct seasons, and you know the the 
back and front half of uh, two of those aren't very kind of Bermuda and the, and the entirety of one is not good at all, but you know, there is a, a pretty good window here of being able to grow it. And so uh, I'm excited to get another Bermuda field in here and show what it can do. It's not, you know, necessarily the only way that they build fields or the only uh, option or solution that's out there, but it fits and checks a lot of boxes because quite honestly, you mow it, you water it, you keep it fed, and you do about one French side up in September for spring dead spot, and the shit pretty much takes care of itself. I think someone said on my property uh, intro video that I did on YouTube that they were like, you should just get some verbuna started and let that thing just go wild <laughs> and just forget about cool season completely. I was like, yeah. That uh, would be interesting because then, you know, the only thing you got to buy, well, not the only thing you got to buy, but... You know, you just go out there and buy yourself a nice verticutter, right? Yeah. And then anything that dies out, it's like, oh, all right, well, you know, it's May 15th, time to go verticut and then throw some sprigs down uh, where all my winter kill is. So, with the way yeah. the things have been changing in terms of how hot it seems to be consistently, uh, you know, I, it might come to that someday, but the problem would just be. <laughs> It's still pretty damn cold here during the winter time, so we'll we'll see how that goes. But yeah, it's it's worth it's worth trying out, I think, for a variety of reasons. So we'll see. I will. Uh, I'll see if we can get you some iron cutter Bermuda out there, either for me or somebody else, so you can sprinkle it in and give it a try. See yeah. what happens with it. Did you do anything at home though? I know you were talking about doing some projects at your house. Ooh, uh, so I went ahead and I sprayed out a little bit more of the poetry and the poet annual I had in the front yard, and um, I've got my hands on. Man, I'm I'm so torn on this one because I have two different bluegrass um, blends that I would like to use, and I don't know what I want to do. I don't know what I want to do. So I'll I'll te- I'll I'll ask you and see what you think. So one is, you know, traditionally bred bluegrass and sort of all the rage right now. And that's kind of what I had before at HDT when it was really starting to peak and become popular just to try it and say, okay, hey, I've got, you know, 800 square feet in the front yard and I don't really care what happens to it. I really don't. I want it to look respectable, but it doesn't need to be. Um, I'm not rolling Ryan Norris status. Let me just say that I'm not, you know, I got to I got to a uh, 14-year-old uh, Honda HR216 that does just fine, and I'm very happy with it. There you go. So, yeah, yeah. And um, so I'm between that, and I've got my hands on a very small amount of uh, Provista from Scott's. And, you know, so for folks that are listening that don't know what that is, so it is a, a product that has been patented and bred by Scott's that is... Um, Roundup resistant, that's one of the claims to fame that it has, which means if you get Poa annua or Poa triv or some of these other really, really difficult to control grassy weeds in particular, but also some of the broadleaf weeds as well, that you can literally spray right over top of it with Roundup, it will kill only the weeds and not your desirable turf. So that's kind of the selling point of it. Now the downsides are, and I've, you know, I've seen some folks on Discord and other places posting pictures recently of just how bad it seeds out. And let me see if I can pull one up for you here, Mr. Nor, and send it to you. You were, you sent me a picture, so I gotta yeah, I gotta return the favor. This is um, 
should pull it up here. So one of the downsides of this stuff is that it will form seed heads. And I'm talking like it is a prolific seed head producer. Yeah, uh, it's kind of a pain. It is, and it's like, okay, you know, again, the whole choosing grass type and everything is like, you know, which three to six weeks do you want your grass to look like shit? And I'll help if you tell me which three to six weeks, I can help you pick what kind of grass you're gonna grow in your yard. <laughs> That's really, I, I love, uh, that's one of my favorite consulting questions to ask people is like, okay, well, you know, which grass should we pick? Well, tell me when you don't mind when it looks like shit. If you say June, I might tell you ProVista just because right now it don't look very good in a lot of places. And so uh, that's due to a lot in, in large part to the seed head stuff. And I'm sending this to you as we speak. And you can tell me. If this is something that um, Mr. Nor could stomach at his place. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that looks you, like you, it, it looks like POA. Like it, do you need a barf bucket? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not so much but a fan it, of that. But it, so if you it, and hopefully again we can we can stick this in the show notes. You can take a look, but it looks like you know when you get that like first like fake snow at your house like. It's just enough to cover the grass and like, oh, look, it snowed. Oh, that's awesome. You know what I used to have when I first moved in here? It, I don't know if someone overseeded it or it was just whatever happened with the sod that they originally laid, it, whatever survived. It was some kind of really crappy ryegrass that used to look a lot like this when it all seeded out. You know, like some of that, mm -hmm. it just almost looks like it rained seed heads on top of it. But yeah, yeah. it's pretty gross. <laughs> So, you know, it does look pretty good the rest of the year, and I'm interested to see of how clean I can get it to look. And again, for, for my purposes, generally speaking, you know, spring and fall is what I'm mm -hmm. most concerned with. How does it look and how does it play? Now, one of the other big things, too, with it is um, that one of the claimed benefits of it is it has a, a substantially reduced mowing requirement you know, up to something in the order of like 50% less mowing. Now, whether that actually comes to pass, I haven't really probed the folks that I know that are growing it to see how accurate and true those claims are. But yeah, you know, if you're, if you're the type like you, Ryan, that travels a lot for business or, you know, isn't always home to make that mow, especially in the middle of the season when things are growing like crazy, I could see it being a benefit. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of interested of just so what's you know, your that is a trial. what's your like of the HGT uh, stuff? Like, what do you like about it compared to you know some of the other high end? You know, I, I don't know very, what the very, tests look like with that one, but uh, very disease resistant. So the, you know, the thing with HDT is that the the real star of the show is a cultivar called Barvet, like Corvette, but Barvet. And, um, it, you know, the other two that go in there kind of change and can be range from really good to pretty okay. Mm -hmm. And, and um, it's that bar vet. So what I've noticed in five, five, six years of growing it, um, number one, it's a, a different color than traditional bluegrass. It is much more of a limey. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is like I don't really like the color of it every time I've seen it, but you can get it dark, but you got to fertilize the shit out of it. Yeah, and stay on top of it. 
So, and I see that with sod growers that grow it is they will juice the hell out of it right before they send it. And then, you know, four, four weeks or so later after it gets rooted in and really all that nitrogen comes out of the plant and it's expelled. People are like, man, my sod's real chlorotic and yellow. It's like, no, it's just HDT is staring you in the face. And it's not a bad grass. Like, so the one thing I like about it that is, uh, and, and you'll see this in the university and NTEP trials is that it's incredibly resilient and disease resistant. It does great with traffic. It does um, great with, you know, in my world, divot recovery and things like that. So it's a very, very aggressive grass. You know, it comes up. Uh, that was its big claim uh, that they they really pushed out there is that you can get it to come up in seven days. And now there's a lot of other bluegrasses that do it just as good a job right. coming up in seven days. Yep. But um, no, I really like the disease resistance. It's kind of a pain on the color of of really trying to get that deep dark hue, dark green hue that you would like to see. Yeah, that's probably what always turned me off to uh, any of those right away because I was like, eh, I'm such a, I want it to be just like spectacular <laughs> looking that I don't really give a shit about the, all the other stuff. I'm like, yeah, I'll figure all that out. But I get it in your world; it's a lot different because, especially if you have a huge field. And you need, you know, traffic and people playing on it and you, you know, budgets of fungicide. And I get all that stuff for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I, I hate to say that I have no better reason than I've been um, empowered and enabled by Mr. Ryan Noor to just be bored with this shit and ready to move on. Yeah. But that's, that's why at home you need to do something more drastic. That's what I think. Well, that's a, what, what kind of, dr- what are we, what are we talking here? I don't I mean, know. I, gotta, I mean, I'm gonna snort lines of bluegrass seed off the toilet, or what? I mean, she is could go that far, I guess. I, I I don't I don't really want to do that. I don't have a dollar bill to roll up and do that. But um, uh, I, you know, I I thought about the Bermuda thing of just being that asshole that would do it, and I still might. I still might. I was almost gonna say I think <sighs> we should do that. You know, it's uh, I, I think I talked about it previously. Is it's just that. There's a lot of shade over there, yeah. But this is a new, this is a new grass. It's you know the the Bermuda grass that we're going to be using on this one field is Iron Cutter, so it's a product that is uh, developed originally by the Johnston Seed Company, and then licensed to Mountain View. And um, you know, I haven't seen it uh, other than some very small samples of it. You know, to be able to say definitively, oh, it's a great product. It's this, it's that. Uh, the NTEPs are great on it for particularly the things that we want to see. So in terms of the biomass production that it produces so that we've got good uh, to great footing all season long, great divot recovery uh, and great survivability and sustainability through the wintertime, great on all those things. So maybe all those things combined, you put it in a home on situation with uh, some dickhead like me taking care of it, you know, that quite frankly uh, is not... <laughs> putting in the time or the effort that I always should. Um, my lawn can be somewhere between um, the silver spoon kid and the bastard stepchild. It just depends on what's going on at home and at work that week. And so I think that's something too, that I'm looking for is just the, um, yeah, that I'm, was the one thing that was nice about the HDT is like you could beat it up and you could ignore it, but you can come back and love it and take it to the movies and buy it some nice things and put some fertilizer on it and it would still love you. You know? Yeah. It was a very, very adaptable grass. Whereas I don't want to get in a situation where you start down that road of um, not taking care of it 
as well as you should. And it's just sort of like the spiraling effect. So, um, God, man, it's a tough decision. I'm going to hear that. Now you're going to, I'm going to hear that word in your voice. I'm going to be ordering that, you know, sod for the, uh, for the football field. And I would pay for it. It wouldn't be on anybody else's dime, but I would be like, Hey, uh, Hey man, I think you can put an extra big roll in that truck for me. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't think I would sprig it. I think I would, if I was going to do it here, I would just go ahead and sod it in too many light issues. And that would be the worst is, is trying to get established from sprigs and, not being successful or being moderately or partially successful and then having to live with a half growing in yep. Bermuda grass lawn going into wintertime and I don't know. All right. So enough about me and my lawn. I'll, I'll, I'll get it figured out. All right, man. You know, <laughs> you're like the, you're like the nagging friend. No, wife, I'm just, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, honestly, just because <laughs> you don't do any home projects with lawns. It's like, all I hear in the back of my head, I swear, is going to be, I'm going to be driving down the road to a consulting stop or something, and I'm going to hear Ryan Nor's voice saying something drastic. And I'm going to be like, oh man, what could I do? <sighs> yeah. Well, you right, know, you're talking about, about uh, Poet that you've been dealing with, and I think there's some good listener viewer questions, uh, viewers as in YouTube viewers that have written in with a few questions on a few things mm-hmm. too but let's get to a few of those here um the first one involves poetry and this is basically uh guy's done two fall overseedings he's in the northeast he has a blend of kentucky bluegrass fescue and ryegrass um so all of a sudden this spring he says he suddenly has poetry everywhere in all caps uh, I did not notice it in previous years at all. I always had a dark green lawn. Now I have blotchy lime green everywhere, and it appears to be outcompeting a lot of desirable grass. So, one, do you have any idea how this suddenly ended up, or how I suddenly ended up with this situation? Where did it come from? Two, I have a large yard. Nuking it is not an option. Do I have any recourse, or do I cry and find a new hobby? <laughs> <laughs> Well, don't cry, man. I mean, it's just grass. Like, I might cry. Well, yeah, if you had a huge last lawn. But you know what, though? there was a, It was there every day that you'd be like, nuking, it's not an option. Like, no, just, no. That, that just doesn't exist in your vocabulary. No. You'd be like, all right, here's my 4% Roundup <laughs> cocktail. Like, uh, you know, here, I'm, I'm going to put that next to the Keystone. I'm going to mix this up. I'm going to drink this. And then we're going to go out and nuke this bitch. Yeah, you wouldn't have any problem with that. All right, so, um, you know, without seeing pictures, I don't know if I can positively ID it with, you know, is it is it truly triv? Um, you know, so just real quick on IDing it, I would tell um, our viewer, listener, person here that ID it first. So the thing that you're looking for there is um, go through the plant taxonomy or the, excuse me, the plant morphology there and the ligule, right? So we pull the collar and the sheath back, you know, there's going to be this kind of membrane, this translucent membrane that we're staring at on Kentucky bluegrass. It's pretty short on uh, poetry. It's really tall. So look up poetrivialis ligule and see what you see and see if that matches up with what you're seeing. Now, this is an interesting story and something that's happened to me recently. So uh, fairly new lawn, 
that um, very high end that somebody called me to consult on because of the same thing, because they were like, man, this is uh, some of it was as old as three years. Some of it was new as uh, less than a year. And, and the call was that, well, it's really splotchy with this light green stuff and it's got to be poet. It's got to be poetry. It's got to be some type of grassy weed. And so I'm out there and I'm looking at the stuff and I'm hands and knees magnifying glass, like the whole bit. And I keep telling like, this is, this is bluegrass. This is Kentucky bluegrass. And it, it, all the ID characteristics came out positive, took it down to Ohio state, let them look at it. Yeah. It's Kentucky bluegrass, but this stuff is super lime green and it's growing at an exponential rate, much faster than what you see um, around it. You know, it's a, it's a lighter color. It's just, it's a funky looking, mm-hmm. not very pretty grass. And so, Went back and talked to the sod grower because this was a sodded lawn in this case. And um, they were starting to see some of the same things where it was almost like segregation, like where there was, you know, patches or runs of this stuff, you know, in and around um, healthy, dense, dark green looking turf. And so um, some of the stuff that came out from that was, number one, it all kind of blended in. Like we did a fertilizer app and we knocked our height down just a quarter of an inch everything kind of blended in within two weeks it was gone uh the other thing too is tried to examine it from the sod grower side of hey what did you plant that field with and where did it come from who handled it all that kind of stuff and so there was actually not nothing nefarious or nothing um with ill intent but uh, some some quality control issues from the seed supplier to the sod farm that we then discovered because they ended up having about 30 acres of this stuff that was the same way. And they, they were very limited on who they could sell it to because golf courses wouldn't buy it and uh, certain other other customers wouldn't buy it. So it was very interesting to see um, that kind of tiff between yeah. a grower and a seed supplier because that, that usually never happens. I mean, they'll both stand by it. But so, yeah, so... Um, well, when I, short. when I was out in Arizona at that sod farm and uh-huh. the, seed, the seed guy was there, um, the one that oh, I know gosh. as well. And so they were talking about that. They're like, you know, you have to have that relationship between the people that you trust, that whatever, especially in an industry like that with high-end, you know, turf that they're doing, they're like, I need to make sure that what they say is in the bag is in the bag to the best of their knowledge and uh yeah but they're you know they're they're kind of going back and forth with each other about that for sure oh man that's yeah that's that's tough so uh, you know i would say here in this case is make sure you get a positive id on it and again i would look at um just google poetrivialis ligule if you want to be really specific but poetrivialis identification make sure that checks out first but i'd be anxious to see if there's any update from this gentleman if he uh if yeah, he listens and comments. I'm going to pull a couple samples of the spots that I have too and kind of show you what I've got going. There there was a couple in the front ryegrass that were acting a lot like what you're describing where actually when I got the PGR on it and everything has started to really slow down in growth, I haven't noticed it much anymore. It's interesting. Hmm. So, I don't know. It is interesting. But... Yeah, uh, you know, if you've got a, if it actually is and you've got a huge area like that, then pretty much there is really no other option other than nuke, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. at that point, say bye bye. And um, 
I'm sorry it's a large lawn, but you know, big problems require big solutions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the next question is, uh, let's see here. I have a real problem. That's always a good one when you start off. Oh, gosh. My soil is so bad that at the end of May, it's already cracking like crazy. I'm quite sure that the majority of my lawn is nothing but clay. The only thing that seems to grow well are the weeds. How can I change my soil so that grass actually grows instead of weeds? Well, again, not knowing or seeing or anything like that is... uh, The first thing I would do is... um, one test your soil right to make sure you know what you're dealing with that's number one number two is um look at those weeds and try to identify those because you know there's such a thing that we refer to as indicator weeds that will give you a good idea of what may or may not be going on in your soil it's not always absolute but it's at least a good uh general guide point of hey this is a weed that grows much better in higher ph this is a weed that grows better in higher compaction or lower manganese levels things like that that we can then pinpoint and say okay hey if i can id the weed and i can take a soil test i i can kind of hone in on what might be the problem now with it cracking and everything like that easiest thing to do is add water now whether you can or can't do that then it comes back to the wetting agent talk that we had and some of the um the penetrating style ones that you can potentially use to your advantage in some of those situations so Mm -hmm. in this case yeah soil test figure out what type of weeds you have and then figure out what they are indicators for, if anything, and then roll from there. Let's say that there's a situation. um, There's another question coming up. That's actually a lot like this. So uh, we can go in between those and a little bit of experience on what I was dealing with on those two properties that I've seeded. The one last year that I just showed you that actually looks pretty damn good right now, that fescue um, out in the country that we did like two acres, but the soil there too was really, you know, it didn't have a lot of organic matter to it. You could, when we did the test, and you could kind of tell that it just would dry out and crack really easily because of not having a lot of, of cover to it, too, in, in some ways. But for somebody that has a situation like that, or let's say they're in a new home situation, which is the majority of people where, unfortunately, they got a lot of their good soil removed and they're left with a lot of crap that dries out fast or that doesn't, you know, you know what I'm saying? Um, What situation should people be looking at with that type of soil in order to maybe have it become a little more rich or it's going to, it's just going to be better for them long-term. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing that we, we we see folks that are adding uh, organic material in various different ways and forms, right. To, quote-unquote improve that soil and really all you're talking about there is you know water and nutrient holding capacity so again for every one percent that we raise uh, organic material in a soil that's an additional twenty-five thousand gallons per acre of water that we can hold in that soil so it doesn't sound like a lot but when you think about this i guess let's put it in these terms too is um for every thousand square feet right, that we want to water an inch, it's about 627, 30, or 20, yeah, like 630 gallons of water we need to put down to to put an inch of precipitation over a thousand square feet. So, you know, that's a significant sum when we talk about organic material. And if we're low in that to start and we're um, putting ourselves in a situation where we're unable to hold that in the soil, it's going to create uh, a, a very, very, challenging growing environment so what do you do 
Well, you're probably going to have to go top down, right? Because unless you're willing to go full RK on your lawn and just uh, at a moment's notice, you know, be the hitman assassin. Yeah, be the hitman assassin that just, you know, emotionlessly and uh, without um, remorse just destroys your lawn. <laughs> um, you you have to go ahead and, and do it top down. So that means if you're going to use something like uh, compost to try and top dress out over the soil and hope that it works down and then becomes um, sort of a finished source of carbon and nitrogen that you'll, you'll get a little bit of a bump from on the fertilizer side with the nitrogen and then have that carbon source in there to be not only food for microbes, but also to be, again, a source for water to be retained nutrients to be retained and then slowly let out to uh, plant and to be a plant available. It's going to take a long time. I've seen some it's going decent to take a benefit sustained, from that. It's going to take us. Yeah, yeah. It's going to take a sustained effort. I mean, so I guess tell me on your side of it is that was your soil before you started, right? What did you do? Well, actually my soil was pretty good. Um, I was basically where I'm at now was a, kind of like a floodplain before they they didn't strip a lot of it so it's really really rich and that's where i get all that high organic matter backyard too but um okay that first project that i did at my friend's house where he had you know two a little over two acres of ground that they basically stripped just completely of everything decent that was there and so he did a lot of compost work um, two or three times a year in, in some of the main sections of some, mm-hmm. some good stuff. And we noticed a big difference um, in terms of how well things grew in in those areas compared to areas that didn't have it. Or, like you said, the amount just of moisture that it can hold better than just drying out and cracking within a couple of weeks of not having any rain or something. So that helped a lot. Yeah, and I think that's that's a situation that is it's fortunate that they they did that and they saw that on the front end. So here's what I would say is that if you already have a house that's built, it's going to have to probably be top down unless you're even after you just sodded it ready to pull up the lawn and, and take it all out and restart over. That might be one out of ten people, right? That have the that have the scratch, the time, maybe and the, point uh, one out of ten. <laughs> Okay, point one out of ten. I mean, I'm being generous, but you know, the uh, I, I was going to say and finish that with the uh, political marriage capital to say, hey, I know we just put this nice lawn and we paid extra to sod it and everything, but this some bitch has to go. It's just got to go. <laughs> yeah, like you got to have some big old brass ones to walk into the room and say that shit. You know, like um, you might as well just go in there and say, I think your sister's really hot and your best friend's cute. I mean. That's 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 probably on the same level, eh, maybe, but close, close. So, um, what about yeah, another you, approach uh, that I was thinking of? Okay, of just going straight instead of worrying about the crappy or like whatever soil you have there, but going after the sand cap method over top. Ooh. Going with a little green dock here, huh? Yeah, that's that's doable. I mean, especially if you got crap soil and you can, uh, again, stomach putting out uh, from a physical and cost and uh, being emotionally unavailable to your significant other there for a few days. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you know, of, of getting that all out there, then by golly, I would do it. I think you're going to see better results from that. Um, and again, so folks are going to be like, well, why would, you know, okay, you're in a, a really crappy kind of almost sterile environment. And now you're going to put sand, which is even more sterile on top of it. Why would you do that? Well, the reason is, is we want to get the primary area of, of root zone up and out of that crappy soil and growing in sand. And then it also turns into a situation where we're able to more closely monitor and manage um, nutrient applications, right? So we have to spoon feed, right? When we yeah. get into a coarse textured soil. And so yeah. that's a big decision of not only the cost of sand and everything of doing it right, but then saying that, hey, okay, I just turned this into a every two to four week kind of fertilization schedule. Yeah, I was going to just say that that what I just said there was not for the person who wants to mow once a week, <laughs> wants to fertilize twice a year and then be like, no, no. So just don't get that misconstrued as to we're not adding sand yeah. to everything and then being like, yeah, I'm just going to barely manage this ever. No, yeah, and that's the other thing is you're committed to doing continued sand top dressing at that point too for it all to work the right way. Yeah. It's not just like, hey, you know, just put it down and don't worry about it. So, um, you know, the other thing I would say here that doesn't get talked about enough, I mean, I know we've talked about it several times to a, a certain extent, but if you're thinking about you're in the process of you might do it in the future would be in terms of building a home or sodding a lawn is having some really, really tight specs of what it is that you want as a finished product. So again, you can put in there that, hey, you need to amend the soil and you're going to put this much out and you're going to till it in and you're going to do it in multiple directions so that we get um, you know, a good homogenous root zone to grow into, yada, yada, yada. I mean, there's a bunch of different things you can put in there. But the, the point being is that then you go out there and hold into it because the company that signs that contract says, hey, I'm going to do it this way, the way you want and give you the product that you want, the end result. And if they don't do it, then you fire them or you hold it against them, whatever the case might be in terms of finances. But um, at least everybody knows the rules of the game going in. And I think that's what a lot of times we're uh, too trusting of builders and um, landscapers and things like that. And people that, quite frankly, I'm, and I'm not dogging on, they're probably going to hear this and be like, that rat bastard god no but frankly a lot of people that just don't give a shit yeah just yeah. don't just don't give a shit like you know like hey bub i'm gonna sod your yard oh cool how are you gonna prep it right the dirt oh cool I, yeah you know. because there's no long-term <laughs> consequence for them i mean exactly they don't Ex they don't care exactly you you are a, in the um, continuum of uh, grass relationships. You are a tender fuck buddy to these people. That's it. That's all you are. You're going to be in and out, and you're going to be swiped left and get the hell up on out of there. That's all you are. So, you know, to get that off on the right foot, you might have to learn a little bit about, you know, what needs to be done, why it needs to be done. And so, RK, this might be a good opportunity to to do some videos and some things like that on you know the the process there of how do we get soil ready for sod how do we install sod and then how do we take care of sod post install to have the best result because i don't think there's a whole lot out there no 
no. organically on YouTube that 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 shows those three critical steps, right? Those are the three major steps. We can certainly break it down further from there, but just to kind of go over those three things, uh, again, prep, install, post-install care. I think those would be, be really good. Things. Fantastic. Cause you're right. There's not, uh, there's not a lot on that. And I know there's a lot of people out there in that situation. You know, they just, they just got their house and they're so thrilled with, you know, a new build or whatever it is, but, they all of a sudden realize, well, I don't really know what to do with this yard because it's not, it's just, just have a lot of questions about it. So I think that's a good, a good thing to talk about for sure. Fantastic. So next, next question here, I have a question for you and RD in your videos touring with the ISU and the Arizona Cardinals, they mentioned overseeding weekly due to high traffic. With that kind of weekly overseeding, does that mean they're not doing the long and deep watering? Are they constantly watering to keep the seed moist? Just curious to try this in my lawn due to heavy traffic from our German Shepherd. Oh, all right. This is actually something that I say to some people who have questions about like dog traffic where I kind of compare it to that a lot of times where I'm like, think about this as you're having a sports game on your lawn like all the time and you kind of need to be consistently putting something back in there or you're not going to have a lawn. I just totally envisioned the puppy bowl and got really excited. I love the puppy bowl. Okay. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's no different. Like the grass doesn't know if it's a, uh, you know, 260 pound high school kid or if it's a, 86 pound German shepherd, right? So to the extent that he talks about uh, what kind of weekly overseeding, with that kind of weekly overseeding, what does that mean as far as the irrigation? Is it the quote unquote long and deep watering? Now, no, Um, it would totally be a seed establishment situation where you'd be watering much more frequently at lower volumes, right? To try and get that seed to pop and get going. So are they constantly watering? Yes, absolutely. It's going to be multiple times a day. And so how can you do this and how can you employ some of these tactics in your yard? Because here's the other thing is that in those stadiums, right, there's only games on Saturdays at Drac Trice. And there's only games on Sundays or Mondays uh, in Glendale. So you have a German Shepherd or a dog or whatever that's going out to pee your poop seven days a week. And so that even that seven days might seem like, oh, it's a week. Like, who cares? Like, that's more than enough for ryegrass. And RK, you can attest to this. Seven days is more than plenty to get ryegrass up. And hell, you might even get a mow on it, right? Yeah. Seven days. So um, that's the difference is the daily use part versus the, call it weekly use of these facilities is what sort of dictates how... um, how we might see a, a strategy like this employed. So what I mean by that is that I would just be going out with much, much lower rates and I would be seeding like every second or third day, like just dropping a little tiny bit of seed down because in this case, what we're talking about is more of not overseeding, but what is considered to be seed banking, right? So we're picking and putting much smaller amounts than are typically used for overseeding, putting them out every say 10 to 21 days right and ideally before a match because if it's soccer if it's football whatever we 
we can allow those athletes to then use their uh, cleats to push that seed down into the soil and get really, really good seed to soil contact. And we might use other cultural practices like purification or top dressing or a combination of those things in order to give us a good seed bed and uh, smooth the surface out when it's all said and done. That said, uh, if, you know, if you have a dog like this and everything, small amounts every, you know, again, 10, 21 days, not a big deal. How much you water it is up to you, but trying to keep it moist and get it growing in absolutely is going to help your cause, right? Uh, in terms of putting stuff on camera or, um, in this case, it's just, you know, making sure the lawn's presentable when folks come over, whatever the one, case uh, one thing about ryegrass too, that I've learned is that I mean, that stuff is so resilient in terms of I won't water certain areas. It'll just, you know, like let's say a, a landscape bed that it got into or cracks in the driveway or whatever, and it wasn't getting consistent like three times a day water or whatever. And a lot of times you'll find that it withstands a lot more than you think it would. So if you were using something like that, and even if, if I think your watering wasn't, spot on i think it would probably still work to some extent for sure yeah and again that whole seed banking approach is basically to kind of back that up for a second is imagine if we said hey if you got the german shepherd go out and you know for um you know a total rate of 20 pounds per thousand of ryegrass which is an exceedingly high rate of ryegrass maybe you say okay hey i'm gonna do two pounds a week every other week for 20 weeks, right? So that's 10 seedings over 20 weeks at two pounds per thousand. That's 20 pounds of ryegrass per thousand square feet. The idea is, is that there's always some being sowed in terms of being seeded. And then there's always some that should be germinating and should be nearly two weeks old at that point. Right. And so this idea of, you know, getting into the German shepherd or, an athlete or whoever is out there to destroy your grass, your job is to grow it back faster than they can destroy it. That's the simplest terms that your job uh, or your your level of home ownership exists is that you are there to um, make it grow back faster than they can destroy it. Yep. Okay, last question, RD. I saved I saved a good one for last. Oh here. gosh. So this is this is gonna be a little long. The backstory. So on the very first episode. He's all the way back to the first episode. RK joked Damn. about having asked RD about putting ice on his lawn during the summertime. You two laughed it off, but I'd like to ask some questions for real. While feasible, while unfeasible for 99.9% of the population due to odd circumstances, I think I could actually pull this off and perhaps benefit from it. First, I'm growing an entirely Kentucky bluegrass lawn in the transition zone. Second, my lawn is small only 3,000 square feet, and the parts that experience the most severe heat stress are even smaller, perhaps maybe around 700 square feet at most. Third, I work a job where I can get unlimited amounts of ice for free. <laughs> Fourth, I leave for work around 12.30 p.m. and get home around midnight. My thought would be that I'd bring a cooler to work, fill it up with ice, leave the cooler in my basement, and then on very hot days, spread the ice on the lawn before I leave for work. This is obviously this is this obviously a stupid very idea, Stupid idea, but could it be beneficial, or is ice sitting on the blades of grass going to be more harmful than helpful? Okay, this dude's crazy. Like this guy's on our level. 
I want to meet this guy. You you Fine. know who it is, actually. I'll tell you after the show who it is. Oh, fudge. Oh, goodness. I can't even imagine. Okay. So, um, okay. Is it a problem? Ice on the, on the blades of grass a problem? No, it's not. Um, especially on a, on a day where you're 80 plus or whatever, because that stuff's going to melt so fast that it's not going to have any chance to begin to have any type of freeze or um, thaw, any, any type of those issues, right, that we would see in a typical weather pattern that's like that. So that's number one. There's no deleterious effects there. Um, could you take it and put it on your lawn right before work going there at 1230 and help it out? You could. You could. I, I mean, I, I've seen this done. I've done it myself on putting greens and low cut turf where, yeah, you're going to cool down that plant. And it's typically one uh, situation where, especially if you have heat stress plants. So, you know, this is going to be near the driveway or up against the building where there's a lot of radiant heat that might affect those plants. This can really be a great tool. Uh, I'm gonna try this. I'm I, now. <laughs> now I'm now I'm interested. I gotta. Try well, so this. then the other part <laughs> that's nice is that you can also use it on like localized dry spots, and this is sort of like, you know, they have the, those wedding agent tabs now and all that kind of stuff. This is like the old old school wedding agent tab because the idea is is that you lay it down on the ground, and it melts so slowly, right? Yeah. That it really percolates slowly down the soil. It's not like just taking a five gallon bucket and dumping it. Or taking a five-gallon bucket or a gator bag and putting it up by a tree, putting some little holes in it, and it trickles out of a half an hour. Like that might not be enough. So there's ways to use it to your advantage. Um, is it going to be a world beater? Is it going to be the thing that wins the war? Nah, probably not. But I think you'll you'll see some some benefit from it. And if you can get unlimited amounts of ice, I mean, I'm picturing somebody backing up with a. Uh, <laughs> You know, like a pickup truck with the whole that's lined in bisqueen or something like that, or you know, plastic drop cloth and just going to town. Remember that? Uh, it was days confused, and I can't remember whose car it was, but they they opened up the trunk and it was just like full of ice and beer. Like, where the fuck were those people when we were in high school, man? <laughs> God. No, I'm gonna amazing. I'm gonna try this on. So speaking of that, though, like right the one sidewalk area that I have along the driveway, mm-hmm. there's just something there. It's, you know, the way the, the concrete was laid or something, there's a, an area where there's shallow roots and stuff and it just gets really toasted really fast. So mm-hmm. I'd like to just do a little experiment and then do take soil temperatures as well and, uh, you know, see how much of a difference it makes and for how long it lasts and all that. Oh, boy. Well, hey, you know what? It's not even, uh, it's barely June, and Ryan Orr's already got a science fair project for next school year. So we're all set. Yep. Yep. We're going to have the three panel, like, cardboard cutout <laughs> thing, and yeah, like the whole deal. I that love sounds it. fun, doesn't it? We should. We should have, like, a, uh, you know, whether it's on the Discord or YouTube, is like a, a turf science fair. Like just, you know, just basic stuff like, hey, I've got this hypothesis and I'm going to test it out and use the scientific method and collect data and present my findings. And it doesn't have to be something super involved like a research paper, but just people that want to prove something right or wrong and see what happens, right? Like 
trust the data and not just be like, well, I think this will happen. How much do you think it would actually lower it and for how long temperature wise? And obviously there's a lot of variables there, but I bet in the top inch or two of soil, you're going to lower the temperature 10 degrees, maybe a little bit more. And um, it will last to the extent that it's going to go back up to its original temperature when you first got there. I would say within an hour and a half, probably tops. Okay. I have just a guess, just a pure guess. right? So there. the question in that, in that way would be, you know, what does that hour and a half really buy you? You know, does it make a whole lot of difference or does it not? Um, I think it can help you get through, especially if you have already stressed grass. And I think that's where I've seen it work the best, just anecdotally. I have seen it work the best in terms of you've got already stressed turf, whether it's rough height, you know, closer to fairway height, like what you're at on the front lawn, um, and all the way down from and up from there is that it's going to make enough of a difference that you're going to notice something. But is it going to be like, oh, my gosh, like we can't live without that. It's it's such a staple of our program for Ryan to go out there and put um, ice all over the lawn. It, there was a – yeah, I don't know that's going to do anything. I'm just reminded of the story I remember I think I read that was from like two or three years ago where uh, Ozzy Osbourne, it was like really hot in L.A. And he had an ice company come out and fill – his pool with ice to cool it down and it like it worked for like 10 minutes and the temperature was right back up <laughs> in the pool so you got to remember too that the specific heat of water the energy required to raise that temperature is not very high so yeah once you get yeah. it going it's 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 tough to i just want to the see these way. photos because unlimited amounts of ice and i just want to see like that 700 square foot completely covered in ice and yeah yeah, I'm anxious now to know who this is so we can have them do that for us. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, I think that's the fun for tonight. You know, we covered a lot of different stuff, and there's a whole lot more to uh, to come. We need to do some deep dive on that sod stuff. We didn't even get to. Wanted to talk a little bit about T-Jet nozzles and sprayers and that type of fun stuff. Um, oh, man, it sounds so fun. But it's, it's late and many beers have been drank. So you know what? And not even just beers. I should say just a quick shout out to our friends at Keystone and Keystone Light for keeping this thing going. It's, uh, yeah, it makes the conversation a little bit easier to have. It's not that I don't like you, but it definitely, <laughs> it, it lubricates the vocal cords in a way that many other things can't do. That's right. Say that. That's right. Yes. So, yep. well, hey, thanks. Thanks for having me on. And again, um, you know, keep those questions coming. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll dive into the T-Jet thing. I think that's an important thing to talk about is sprayers and nozzle selection, calibrations, things like that. And then the sod thing. Yeah, we should be ramping up here really soon. So pray for uh, seasonably cool and dry weather <laughs> and the rest of it will take care of itself. Yep. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you all for listening. And until next time, uh, send your questions over to me and we'll, we'll talk next time, RD. See you.